This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and welcome to another mini-episode. Today we are talking about the cognitive bias known as confirmation bias. Um, So to start off with, what is confirmation bias? Um, So at the most basic level, confirmation bias is basically the systematic collection of confirming evidence that is given more weight, that is not evaluated critically, and that is remembered better than contradicting information. So for example, if you were to already hold the belief that eating ice cream on Fridays doesn't count as calories because it's the weekend, (laughs) then you will only, you are going to be more likely to look for evidence that confirms that belief to give more weight to that evidence versus evidence that disproves that belief to be less critical of any evidence that is presented, so less likely to maybe try to understand how the study or how the evidence was collected or, or how it was, how the conclusions were come to, and you're more likely to remember the, the evidence that supports eating ice cream on Fridays, not counting as calories, uh, more than any evidence that says that eating ice cream on Fridays does contribute to increased calories uh, because time of week doesn't matter. <laughs> when it comes to ingesting calories. Um, And so this definition, I I thought this was like a really good brief introduction or definition. It comes from um, a chapter by Oswald and Grogene where they kind of laid out these three different parts. Um, Something important to understand about confirmation bias is that it can occur regardless of your education level, your profession, your political beliefs, you know, any other aspects of your life that may influence the way that you approach education or information. So basically, you know, like, I'm just as susceptible as a graduate student to confirmation bias as someone who maybe hasn't done post-secondary education or someone with a high school diploma. We're all this the, the same likelihood to be to fall into this bias. Um, same for profession, right? Like, whether you're a doctor, a teacher, a custodian, you know, all of those people are just as likely to fall prey to confirmation bias, and it happens just as equally on the left end of the political spectrum as it does on the right end of the political spectrum. So I just thought that was really interesting um, that, like, these other factors don't make you less likely to engage in confirmation bias, like, even if you believe that, or even if you have been trained to engage in, like, rigorous scientific you know, exploration or, or the scientific method, or, you know, if you have more education than someone, like, you're still, we're all still humans, which means we're all still, you know, likely to engage in, in different cognitive biases. So I, I just kind of like to set that tone so that this doesn't become an issue of, like, 
I, I, I guess so that people don't think that like, oh, because I have this attribute or because I have this career, like this doesn't happen to me. It's, it's kind of like a universal experience. Additionally, there have been modern studies uh, occurring that have looked at the link between confirmation bias, misinformation, and political polarization, specifically in the context of social media, which I'm going to go ahead and say that if you have been online uh, in any capacity during the COVID-19 pandemic, you've probably seen this kind of play out in real time. For example, you know, like, like sites like Facebook or Instagram will put up like warnings over posts that contain like any information about COVID or vaccines, or we'll even put up, like we'll flag a post if it's kind of been proven to have misinformation in it. Um, And so, but when you put that label on it, for people who are already looking for evidence that what they believe is right, uh, the label kind of serves as a way to contribute to confirmation bias. So like, for example, um, let's say there's a post going around on the on Facebook that says like the COVID COVID deaths are highly exaggerated and you know hospitals are make more money if they put COVID on the death certificate than if they put the real cause of death. Right. So let's say that post is going around. So someone who shares that post with the intent of like this supports my belief that COVID is not as dangerous as uh, you know the CDC says, which I'm gonna be real clear right here. I do not believe. <laughs> I do believe that COVID is, is is dangerous and needs to be taken seriously. But let's say for the sake of this example, like the person who shares this is is sharing it as a piece of information that confirms their belief that COVID is not that dangerous. Then when it's flagged as like misinformation or flagged as COVID related with like, you know, appropriate sources linked alongside the post to kind of disprove it, the per- if the person who shared that is experiencing confirmation bias, they may take that piece of information and either not weight it as heavily, so not take it seriously, the links, they or they may see it as like confirmation that they're on the right track, right? You've probably seen this of people being like, Facebook isn't going to like this post, which means we need to share it far and wide, or it means we're on the right path, right? So, you know, this this is where misinformation can become really tricky in the process of confirmation bias because even in the act of trying to disprove it or trying to spread actual information, it can just kind of contribute to the confirmation bias that's already present for the person sharing the misinformation. And as we have all lived through and experienced that this then plays into a polarizing effect between between political ideologies that has been making social media kind of like a toxic environment. Um, and, and that's not to say that that only occurs because of confirmation bias or that those who, I don't want to say more susceptible because we're all susceptible, but like maybe those who are unaware of confirmation bias are like the worst contributors to this process. I think we all engage in this process. Um, but that doesn't mean that confirmation bias is the only reason and that there are ways for us to maybe use maybe understand confirmation bias better so that we can uh, be more aware of it when we see it crop up. Okay, so confirmation bias, um, how did it begin? How did we first discover it? So in 1960, this guy, Wasson, I don't know, I'm going to call him Wasson, (laughs) did one of the first empirical studies that tried to establish um, confirmation bias. So, uh, you know, throughout history, there have been philosophers and thinkers that have written about this kind of phenomenon of humans 
only wanting to believe or only wanting to see evidence of things that they already believe. But Wasson was one of the first guys to kind of empirically or scientifically try to prove that. So in his study, he had participants who he was told, you have to figure out a rule for how a set of numbers work. So first they were told that a set of numbers that followed the rule was the set 246. And after he told them, okay, this set is the one that follows the rule, 246, then they had to start guessing sets to confirm or deny what their hypothesis was for what the rule was. Um, And in the first trial, people only guessed ascending even numbers. So they would do like 468, 20, 22, 24. Um, and they were assuming that the rule the rule was you have to do ascending numbers and they have to be even numbers. Um, and that in this first trial, they didn't try any other sets. So, like, they didn't try 1, 2, 3, or they didn't try um, 3, 5, 7. They only tried the even numbers and in ascending order, so not 6, 4, 2, uh, because their hypothesis was that it was ascending even. And so, they're only testing or looking for information that confirms this hypothesis. So, aka confirmation bias. Uh, However, an interesting article that I found kind of broke down uh, Wasson's original study and basically he kind of over-exaggerated the effect. Um, And so the the reality was that a majority of the participants, I think it was, there were 13 people who did only did confirmation. The rest of the people did this process called falsification, which is where you would purposely make things that you think violate your proposed rule. So if you think that the order is the rule is ascending even numbers, you would purposely guess 135 um to see if that rules out that it's just ascending numbers or that it's just odd number or whatever. And so in reality there were people who did do this which is the opposite of confirmation bias, right? It's you kind of testing or evaluating information that directly contradicts your belief to get to the truth. And that in fact after the first trial where people were told, like in, in Wasson's actually study, he told people uh, like, hey, <laughs> this is what we actually want you to do. People were able to do it more easily. Um, and, and in his conclusion, Wasson only focused on that small number, those like 13 people who were not able to engage in falsification, who only did the confirmation. So, and I say all this so that we understand that confirmation bias is not like a life sentence. That even in the original study, we see that people are able to be a little more cognitively flexible. They are able to engage in, you know, to engage with evidence that doesn't confirm their beliefs. And that, as with everything we discuss in psychology, and particularly in regards to like big universal concepts, there are gray areas, right? And so confirmation bias is is one of those where there, there may be gray areas. That's the original study. So I wanted to go through a couple of more modern studies, kind of like we did in the IKEA effect episode, because I thought these were really interesting and... You know, although Wasson's study was formative, it was done in an era before the widespread use of technology, and more specifically the internet. And so I think more modern studies where people have access to the internet are important because you can more quickly gain confirming or contradicting evidence that could be potentially overwhelming more than the people that that were in the original study in the 1960s. So although the original study probably was wrong in its conclusions that people are really stuck in confirmation bias, the sort of overwhelming nature of the amount of information we have access to today may actually 
make it more easy to engage in confirmation bias just because there's so much information to filter through. So we're going to go through these studies and kind of see see what I'm talking about here. So this first study um, is about online health information seeking. So this is your classic, do your research, Google the vaccines. And this is specifically about vaccines in early childhood. So this, this study was done in 2019, so it's before the COVID vaccine, but it is about more general like anti-vax um, or not anti-vax, I guess vaccine hesitancy is really what they were looking at and how parents sought out information about vaccines if they were vaccine hesitant or not. So in this study, people who had children between the ages of zero to four were recruited and were exposed to what they called a search result page. So basically they made like a fake web page like you would see when you do a Google search. Um, that had an even number of like results on it that either confirmed or contra contradicted their beliefs. So whether that means they felt positively about early childhood vaccines or if they felt negatively about early childhood vaccines. So first they were just shown the like the test, the results section. So kind of like that preview of and maybe the headline of the article. Then they were asked to pick the five that they were most interested in just from the search results. Then the next phase of the study was they were shown these like chunks of text that were basically from the articles from the results page with either the negative or positive portrayal of vaccinating your child early. Um, and the parents were asked to kind of evaluate if they were, if they found the information credible, they found it useful, or if they found it convincing. So the parents who were in the study were more likely to pick headers from the results page and information from the text in the next page that confirmed their already held beliefs. So if they already believed that vaccinating early was good, then they were more likely to gravitate toward that information. Interestingly enough, those who had higher scores on a measure of health literacy, so more knowledgeable of terms related to health and, and more knowledge or more like seeking out healthcare information, those people were actually more likely to engage in confirmation bias than those with low health literacy, regardless of vaccine beliefs. So basically, someone who had, was high on health literacy was going to be actively looking at more information that confirmed their beliefs than someone with low health literacy. And the author suggested that this might mean that if you feel more confident about certain health topics, then you might be less open to information that challenges that belief. So if you're high in health literacy and you feel like, no, I got this, I understand, like I understand what vaccines are, then when you read information that maybe challenges what your belief is, whether it's for or against vaccines, um, you're going to be less open to that than people who are like, eh, I don't really know what's in a vaccine or not. And so I do think that this has like kind of important implications of like how vaccine information can be disseminated and who it's going to be most helpful for. Now, there is a caveat to this study in that there was, there's two, and one is that there was already a pretty small number of vaccine-hesitant people in this overall study. Um, so they only made up a small portion, and so that may kind of skew the beliefs if most of the people in the study were already kind of on board with getting vaccines, so we don't really have an idea of how like confirmation bias may work for people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, and additionally, the study was actually done in the Netherlands where they have access to universal healthcare <laughs> um, and where like there isn't a big vaccine hesitant movement. 
Um, and so that does change the way that we kind of generalize the studies is that like pe the people in the study had more access to healthcare just in general. So, and that can be a big issue in vaccine hesitancy is just like people don't have access to healthcare um, or maybe they don't understand the like rights and benefits that they have. In addition to, we live in a culture right now in America where people are more vocal about being vaccine hesitant. And so that may have like a ripple effect of, of more people endorse those beliefs. Whereas in a country like Nether the Netherlands, that may not be as prevalent. I picked this study because I thought it was relevant. And even though it was done before COVID, the COVID vaccines were developed, I, I still think that there's, um, there's much to learn from this, even if it's not necessarily generalizable to everybody. Okay, so now to a less controversial topic. <laughs> and so this article was actually published in 2021, so it's it very recent, um, and it's about the concept of food neophobia. So neophobia is like the fear of something new. So food neophobia is the fear of new foods. Um, so this study was done with mostly psych students. They were mostly women, and they were pretty young. About Their average age was like 20, 21, 22. Uh, and so this study I thought was really funny. So it was an online survey um, where they were shown pictures of like really weird fruits. <laughs> um, and I, I did not write down what the name of the fruits were, but like one of the fruits looked really gross. Like like the inside, when you cut it open, the picture of it was like it cut in half and the insides were like this really thick, dark color. Like it looked like rotting food, even though it wasn't. Like it was a ripe, fresh one of these fruits. It looked really gross. Um, and then like some of the other fruits were just like an apple or I think they did like a some sort of citrus hybrid that you know looked more like an orange and then they had these two like gross fruits. Um, so they showed these pictures then they asked the participants if they want what kind of information they would want to know about the fruit and then they measured them for levels of food neophobia. So participants who requested negative information were the ones who saw the nasty looking in quotes nasty looking fruit which suggested like this confirmation that they would be gross so basically like you see this fruit it looks really nasty you think it's going to be gross so you ask for negative information about it like information that confirms this is gross or this is bad for me because it looks bad for you um but interestingly enough, the people who had high levels of food neophobia, so the people who were like least likely to try any new foods, um, they did not have more confirmation bias about the gross food, fruits than people who were low on food neophobia. So the confirm again, like I talked about earlier, confirmation bias kind of exists across across characteristics. So in this case, you're not afraid of new food. You still want negative information about the gross fruit. Um, and the authors actually talked about connecting um, confirmation bias to theories of anxiety and threat evaluation. And so that it, it may be a protective factor of that if I feel anxious about something, it could mean that it's a threat. And so I'm going to seek out more information that proves to me that it's a threat. And I think this is so clear in people who have health anxiety who go onto WebMD. And as someone who does this, <laughs> I'm talking from experience, right? But like, say you have like a weird pain in your neck and you're anxious about it because you're worried that it means something worse. 
So you go onto the internet to look up what illnesses have this symptom of pain in my neck, right? And so I think, you know, a lot of times maybe we jump to like a thyroid issue, right? Because it's like, oh, maybe my neck is swollen or, you know, oh, when I noticed that my neck was hurting, I also noticed these other three things. So you start to tie all these symptoms together and you're searching for that negative information. So maybe you plug it into WebMD and WebMD is like, bro, you have like a pinched nerve at worst, and you're like, no, 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 it has to be something worse. It has to be something worse. So then you go and you look in forums of people who have also had ne- neck pain. Or you go to look at, you know, a social media page or maybe um, like a, a group of people online who believe in self-diagnosis. And, and they're going to be like, oh, yeah, 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 like this this could be this or this could be this type of cancer. And so you're ex- you're looking for more and more of that negative information because you feel threatened by this stimulus of pain in your neck. And so that that they kind of that was the conclusions that the author came to and that's why it may not be impacted by your neophobia because you're already kind of trying to evaluate this threat of this unknown thing regardless of if you were going to eat it or not. Okay, so then now that we've taken a nice foray into fruit, let's jump back into controversy. <laughs> um so this one was uh on climate change. This was published in 2012. Um, this was a, an online study that showed three YouTube videos that either contained climate change information or climate denial information. So that, and this one was done on all online, um, and they had equal, like 50, 50 male and female participants and their average age was actually much older. It was like 51, 50, 52. Um, so these were on average older people than, than a traditionally college samples like we've talked about before right this is this is good that there's a a diversity of age and in this study they found that attitude consistent information was perceived to be the most credible trustworthy effective and participants participants were more empathetic to you so if you already felt that like if you were already a climate denier you would perceive the climate denial information as more credible than the climate change information. And they did find, though, that people who had climate denial views had a very tiny change in their attitudes and policy preferences after seeing the climate change scientific evidence, um, but it was not a large enough effect to be considered a debunking effect. So I think this ties kind of back into what we talked about with Wasson's original study, right? Where, you know, people are not just like, it's not like your mind just shuts off with confirmation bias, right? Like people who, who were climate deniers did have a change in their attitudes and, and were more likely to endorse, were slightly more likely to endorse like climate change policies after seeing the videos, but it wasn't big enough for them to be like, okay, I'm giving up climate denial. I'm going to become a believer in climate change. So that that was interesting. So it's like there's a glimmer of hope there. And maybe if they were continuously exposed to attitude inconsistent information, it would be different. And that, that's my question about this study, right? Is like, what if instead of just three YouTube videos at one time, you watched 10 YouTube videos over a week? or, you know, 50 over a month or whatever. 50 videos over a month sounds like a lot to me. But you know what I mean? Like it was more consistent exposure, right? And I think this slight change, even if it wasn't significant, does give us a little glimmer of hope that that this, it could be possible if you keep the exposure up. Um, And last but not least is a study done in 2020 that looked at online political information. So you see why I'm talking about these, right? Because these are some of the more relevant 
examples of confirmation I think in this day and age just and like just to be honest regardless of what your beliefs are we live in a environment in a culture in a time where political stuff is really fraught and so I think better understanding how we absorb information about big controversial topics can help us to engage with that information more thoughtfully in the future so all that to say when our last one where we talk where the author's looked at online political information. So this was another lab experiment with college students. So again, we're back to being a pretty average, on average, young sample. First, they had participants answer questions about their political identity, uh, and then as well as their like American identity. So like how much you identify with being an American. Um, Then they were shown eight headlines that had a range of political and American takes. So some were like more left, and, but pro-American, some were right, but anti-American, vice versa. Like there were all the possible combinations. So the participants had five minutes to look at the headlines and then read the articles. And so this was another one where their time on each page was measured. So you could see how long were they spending on information that contradicted their identity their political or American identity, and how much time did they spend on information that confirmed it. So the results of the study found that participants showed more confirmation bias when there were more attitude-consistent messages on screen. So if more of the headlines um, aligned with both of their political and American identities, they were more likely to go toward the ones that they agreed with. Um, They also found that positive emotions were connected to longer attitude consistent exposure. So this basically means that we might engage in confirmation to avoid negative emotions. So maybe it makes you feel uncomfortable to be exposed to attitude inconsistent information, or maybe you feel angry or you feel sad. Confirmation bias is sort of like a protective way to avoid those negative experiences because I don't feel angry or sad or guilty when I'm reading information that already aligns with my political beliefs. So there's, there's one kind of, I guess, it's kind of like the implicit bonus of confirmation bias, right? It's like we don't feel negative emotions. Um, and they also found that those who were higher on a measure of social comparison engaged in stronger confirmation bias. So they spent longer on messages that already conformed with their beliefs. Um, and so this basically boils down to like, I can't handle another group being right about a political issue. And so if you're high in social comparison, which means you're you're more likely to compare yourself to people around you, whether that's positively or negatively, right? So, like, social comparison can go either way. You can think, I'm better than this person, or this person is better than me. Um, and there's a lot of emotions <laughs> that can be tied up in social comparison. That's not, I don't need to go, I'm not going to go into that right now, but it's just this idea that if you're more likely to do that, of to to look around at other people and, and compare yourself to them, um, you may want to stay away from like people who are in a different group. So like if you identify as politically left, you may not want to see messages from people who identify as politically right um, because you are comparing yourself to that group and you don't want to be like them. So either you're afraid they might be right about an issue and I may be wrong or you may feel I'm I'm right about this issue and they're so wrong and I don't want to deal with it because comparing myself to someone who's wrong, it means I'm better than them. And so I don't need to engage with them because I'm better than them. That's my like layman's breakdown (laughs) of these results. But I did think it was interesting that there was this like emotional component to confirmation bias that by engaging in information that confirms what we already believe, we're like diminishing 
negative reactions and are more likely to have positive reactions. So that wraps up all of the studies. Uh, and as is the fashion, what do we do now? Now that we've heard all of these studies and learned all these things. Um, and I have to be honest, that confirmation bias is a really tricky one. And, you know, we talked, we've, we talked about a lot of aspects here. There's like a social component to confirmation bias. There's an emotional component. There's, you know, we, we have such an overload of information now that I think it can just, it becomes like a, a quick cognitive shortcut to gravitate toward information that we already believe um, because it takes less work to process it, right? You, you just, oh, I already agree with that. I don't need to read that whole article. Um, and so I think my, my takeaway would be to when you engage with information that contradicts a belief. So let's, let's say, for example, you believe that aliens are coming to Earth to save us from the apocalypse. All right, let's say that's your belief. Whenever you encounter information that contradicts that, right, that says aliens are not coming to save us or they're not coming, instead of immediately clicking off or dismissing the information, I would encourage you to maybe spend some time and examine what is my reaction to this information. Because if we spend more than two seconds on the reaction, we might come to understand what's underneath it. So maybe when you see this article that says, well, aliens aren't real, it's not that you're just angry. It's really that when you find out that aliens aren't real, you realize that maybe we're alone in this universe and we're the only life or at least life that we have access to. And that makes you feel really lonely or that makes you feel very small and insignificant. Or maybe even afraid that if there's nothing else out there, you know, what if this planet is just a happy accident? That can be really scary. Or maybe it's very positive for you. I'm not going to assume. Um, but you see how we can't get to that belief if we just immediately click off the article. And maybe, even though the headline said aliens aren't coming, if you engage with the whole article, you'll see that really it's that aliens aren't coming because we don't know enough about them yet. Or... Aliens aren't coming until we as a society make some big changes. And so this is your encouragement to get out there and advocate for big changes because you want those aliens to come. You can learn a lot <laughs> from information that you wrote off as contradicting based on something like a headline or, you know, a summary of an article. So that is my recommendation is to be more con contemplative of your reaction to contradicting evidence and to give yourself a little window of grace, a little window of patience to ask yourself a couple questions of why could I be experiencing this? What could be the underlying reason? And maybe the underlying reason is just that you're angry. You're, you, you are angry that people think that your right to choose um, is up for debate. And that's just as valid because that is something to be angry about. And that's wrapped up in a lot of things, right? That's wrapped up in, in, in sexism, in misogyny, even in racism, classism. Like, there's a lot in there to feel anger about. And I, and I personally believe, this is my own personal opinion, that there are some issues in which there is no other side. And so we don't, there is no need for confirmation bias because there is not another side, right? There is no rebuttal to, to trans rights or human rights, right? There's no rebuttal to that. And so confirmation bias doesn't apply. <laughs> because what's the contradicting evidence? What what evidence can you present to me that um, trans people don't 
deserve human rights, right? There, there isn't. I mean, you can try. I'm sure there are people that do try, but I think that's a that's an issue that's off the table in regards to having contradicting evidence. Um, but for things that are more nuanced and leave space for debate or leave space for, for contradictions and exploration, uh, slowing down, slowing down and contemplating, and dare I say being mindful <laughs> of your reaction to the information will reveal a lot for you. And I, I hope that moving forward, we can all engage in a little more contemplative practice around contradicting evidence to some of our beliefs where confirmation bias may come into play. Uh, and so with that, that brings us to the end of t- today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next one. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.